A week or two ago, I took my kids to go get some new glasses. And my oldest, Tessa, was just getting an update to her prescription, so she kind of knew how this thing went. But my middle daughter, Rayanne, was getting her very first pair of glasses. And I've decided after that that watching someone get their first pair of glasses might be my favorite new hobby. Kids put those suckers on, and it's like they're having an out-of-body experience, right? They start blinking, they're feeling all bewildered, they start to get a little twitchy and anxious because everything looks so different than it ever did before. The world looks so different to them that it's actually quite disorienting. And it's also really, really funny to watch. But Rayanne, it was interesting, she's kind of going through all this, trying to figure out what's going on. And once she finally calmed down and reoriented herself to the world and, and what was going on, here's what she said to me. She said, Daddy, everything looks so much closer than it used to. Nothing had moved, right? Everything was in exactly the same place it previously was. It was always close to her. And maybe to a degree that explains why she was bumping into things like she was previously. But, but it started to make sense. She saw these things. And with the right glasses finally on her face, she could see clearly, and it did look closer than it was before, right? Now, let me connect this little story to the sermon this morning. The, the title, as you see on the screen, is Secure Hope. And what Joseph's life shows us is that secure hope is actually closer than you think. Hope might feel, it often feels insecure to us, and chaos feels like the constant in our life. Hope might feel distant, and what feels close by is actually fear. But secure hope is actually very close to each of us this morning. What you have to do, though, is get the right glasses on. And so Genesis 40 and 41 serves as a sort of spiritual eye doctor for us, so that we can see how secure hope is closer than you actually think. And if you're to, to summarize the whole sermon in just a few words, you would simply say that. Secure hope is closer than you think. Secure hope is closer than you think. Now, if, if you're new to the Bible, Joseph is a key character in the book of Genesis. In fact, there are more chapters in the book of Genesis given to his life than to any other character in that book. And his life is incredibly relatable to ours. He's on a journey to find a hope that's secure. He's looking for a hope that isn't based in his own performance or in his good circumstances. And so his life for us can serve as a sort of guide as we're similarly looking for this hope that is stable and secure. And from a high level, you can see an outline of his life in four distinct incidents involving a robe. The first incident, his father gives him a robe that says, you're the beloved son, and it treats him as royalty. Everything is going well for Joseph with this robe. It's going up and to the right, you might say. But the next two robe incidents are not good. His brothers strip the robe off of him. They throw him in the pit. They sell him as a slave. He gets carried off to Egypt. And then the next robe incident is where he's with Potiphar's wife. She grabs him and takes his robe, and he flees sexual temptation. He actually gets thrown in jail for doing the righteous thing, where he spends many, many years of life. And here in chapters 40 and 41, at the end of the passage, we find Joseph with the fourth and final robe incident, where he's being honored by Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh places a new honorable, a royal robe on him and says, I'm going to exalt you and lift you up. So that to say, Joseph is found in the good circumstances, the first robe and the last robe, to find a hope that is secure. And he's also found in his bad circumstances with the middle two robes to still have a secure hope that endures regardless of the circumstances he's in. Now, with a whole two chapters today, some hundred verses or so, it's not like we're going to go line by line and hit every single verse. We wouldn't have time for that. We'll skip around a little bit. But the whole of this picture gives us an idea that hope, secure hope, is closer than we think, and this passage guides us in how to find such a hope. It says it exists, and here's how we find it. We'll break it down in four points this morning, and we'll start the first one, the source of secure hope. The source of secure hope. In a sense, these chapters function like a comparison table. Sometimes you see these on TV, right, where you you see the graphic comes up and it shows two sports stars and it has their statistics listed out of all the different things they've done and they're trying to show that one player is better than the other. Or or maybe you, you see this when you look at a comparison chart on TV and it talks about stock performances and which one has, is a better bet going forward. Or, or you see it when it's comparing politicians, right? They put the two up there, and the point is usually to say, like, this politician has a more unified base, this politician appeals more to swing voters, this one has raised more money, and because of that, she is definitely the superior candidate, right? That's kind of how these chapters are functioning. functioning. And God is making a comparison here. He's saying many claim to be the source of secure hope, but as you stack them up, me beside all other competitors, there's actually only one source of secure hope. So I kind of want to show you how that works throughout here. The the story begins with these guys having dreams in jail, the the cupbearer and the baker, and without knowing the meaning of the dream, fear seems to be abounding in their lives. And Joseph says, hey, I can tell you what they mean, but you need to understand This isn't me saying this. This is God giving you what the meaning is. As you you got your copy of the Bible open, I hope you'll keep it open all morning. Look back at chapter 40 and verse 8. Here's how this conversation goes for them. They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And there's immediately a comparison being made. They say nobody's around. He said, actually, God is near, and the interpretation belongs to him anyways. And so Joseph tells them that one guy is going to be restored to Pharaoh, the other guy is going to be executed, and it ends up happening just like Joseph said. And Joseph knew that since it was from God, it was going to happen with surety. There was no doubt whether it would happen or not. So he looks at the guy who's going to be restored and asks him for a favor, He says, remember me, do this kindness to me. Look at chapter 40 and verse 14. Here's where Joseph says this. He says, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do this kindness to me, to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. That that word kindness is a really important one. If you mark in your Bible, you should underline that or circle it or highlight it or something. It's a word that means steadfast love. You'll often hear it translated as loving kindness. It's a love that never fails. 
That particular word right there is used about 250 times in the Old Testament, mostly in reference to God's loving kindness, his steadfast love, his love that never fails. But remember, we're seeing a a comparison chart here, right? Joseph asks this cupbearer to show him loving kindness, show me love that never fails. You pick up in verse 23 and see how that cupbearer responded. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. It's as if God is saying, if the chief cupbearer was the source of a secure hope, it was a very bad source. Because there is no source of secure hope except in God alone. You look back at chapter 39, just turn, turn a page or two back there, and you see the contrast being made explicit. Chapter 39 and verse 21 Whereas the chief cupbearer forgot, here's what we read in 39.21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, exact same word, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. This is if God is saying, there's one source of secure hope that will never forget you, no matter what. Even when life looks way down, he still knows, he still sees, he still remembers, he's still at work. And you place your source or your, your hope in any other source, even if it's an officer that's high in Pharaoh's court, it will be insecure hope. There's actually one more comparison that's kind of dropped into this passage, and I want to show it to you. It drives home the point there's only one source of secure hope. Look at chapter 41, verse 8. Skipping just ahead a bit here. 41.8, we read this. This is of Pharaoh after he had his dreams. He's trying to figure out what's going on. So in the morning, his spirit, that being Pharaoh's spirit, was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So you have to go back and remember Israel is reading this in the wilderness after they've left Egypt, following the Exodus, all of that. And when they hear of all the wise men, the magicians being called into Pharaoh's court, they're immediately remembering when Moses was called into Pharaoh's court and the magicians and the sorcerers and the wise men try and put on this show. And it's sort of a, an epic throwdown to see who can match these miracles, you know, tit for tat, one for the other. And it clearly shows that God is greater than any of these magicians, whether it be in interpreting dreams here in Genesis 40, 41, or whether it be ahead in Exodus, where the same guys show up and God shows himself as superior to them. It's as if to say the most stable and impressive thing you see in this world at that point would have been the court of Pharaoh and all the wise guys that were there and all their powers. The most stable, the most impressive thing in the world does not hold a candle to the God of the universe. He is the only source of secure hope. These guys will all fail. And so for them and for us, the message is actually quite clear as we see this being laid out that there are countless sources of false hope of insecure hope in our lives. And they look impressive to us. They look like they're worth pursuing. God is saying, no, 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 there's only one source, and it's me. We have to recognize how easy it is for us 
to look out on the things in our lives that look like they appear to be a source of secure hope. It's a mirage, though. Whether it be a, a job that you desire or a promotion or a relationship, if I have that relationship, boy, there would be a secure hope in my life. Or an upcoming election. There are so many things like this in our lives, and we must continually tell ourselves, no, there is only one source of truly secure hope. It reminds me of uh, those National Treasure movies with Nicolas Cage, right, where he's running around trying to find all the clues for the treasure. And what does his dad kind of cynically and somewhat wisely say to him? He's like, son, you are running around all over the place trying to find the next clue that's going to unlock the gate to find this buried treasure that's you're wasting your time. You're going to be endlessly striving and never arriving anywhere. You're constantly going to be on the hamster wheel and the treadmill because you're seeking something that isn't secure. It's not actually there. It's a reminder for so many of us. You get your eyes away from the source of secure hope, and we end up constantly striving, never arriving. So I wonder this morning, if for the very first time in your life, you need to discover the only source of secure hope. You need to discover that for the first time. You need Jesus. You need to confess that you are a sinner. You've turned away from him. And there's only one way to have a right relationship with God, to have forgiveness of sins, to have eternal hope with God in eternity. It's through Jesus who came to the earth, who died and rose again to offer that secure and eternal hope to you. That may be the, the most important thing you hear this morning. And I invite you even right now, while I'm still preaching, to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin so that you can be one of his children. If you've got questions, I'd love to talk to you after the sermon about that. But, but I also recognize there's many Christians in the room today and maybe that's you, and you've simply lost your way a bit. You've lost your focus. And this morning, you need to get off the treadmill of false hope because you're wearing yourself out without going anywhere. You also must turn to Christ because we know that as a Christian, you need the gospel just as much as someone who is just believing the gospel for the first time. The gospel is how you become a Christian and how you grow as a Christian. You recognize there's only one source of secure hope. This passage tells us, don't get confused, don't get sideways, don't take your eyes off the prize. Recognize one source of secure hope. But also gives us direction into how to find that hope. That brings us to our second point, the people with secure hope. The people with secure hope. Joseph, of course, has secure hope, but there are some patterns in his life that we start to see throughout the whole Bible. So what I want to do is I want to start and just sketch a little bit about Joseph and then branch out to a couple of other characters. But the main idea to see in this second point is that God uses weak and unexpected people, and he gives them secure hope, and he uses them in amazing ways. These are the people with secure hope. They're not that spectacular. They're not that impressive looking. I think for a lot of us, we end up with a, a sort of a stereotype of the kind of person that God uses. If you think of that person in your mind, who's the person God's going to use in a mighty, miraculous way? They probably dress and talk in a certain way. Their life looks pretty clean to you. It's not you for sure, you might say. 
suggest I'm even a Christian, but I don't see myself as the person that God uses in remarkable ways. That's some super saint, some preacher, some missionary, some person, not me. I think it's a lot of the time how we see ourselves. But if you step back to Joseph and think about what he would have looked like in the original context there, he's a foreigner, he's a slave, he is a prisoner. If anybody doesn't look the part, it's Joseph. Because God is always using people that you wouldn't expect him to use. He's always using the weak people that we wouldn't pick out of a crowd. God is always choosing to exalt the lowly at the right time and do remarkable things that we just didn't think were possible. Take a look at chapter 41, verse 2 with me, right at the very beginning there. After Pharaoh, or after Joseph has interpreted these dreams, after he says, hey, please remember me, 41-2, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Two whole years since Joseph has interpreted these dreams, since he thought he had his get-out-of-jail-free card, since he thought God had intervened and said, here's how I'm going to rescue you, Joseph. And he waits for two years. Now, if I'm Joseph in this situation, I'm saying, God, where are you, man? I see you brought me through all here. I'm in this prison, and I was supposed to get out of here with the interpretation of this dream you gave me. And two years later... I'm still stuck here, and I've gone nowhere. What's going on? Don't the periods of waiting in our life sometimes feel that way? Not supposed to be this way, God. I did the right thing. I fled temptation. I delivered your word like I was supposed to. Why is this happening now? This isn't supposed to be how the promises work. And in the short term, of course, we can't see what God's doing. That's why he gives us his word, so that we can have a zoomed out picture to see the remarkable ways he is working. Because had God, had he intervened sooner and released Joseph, the greater plan would not have been accomplished. See, Joseph could have been released and been on his merry way and been out of prison and been on to his version of a happy life. That would have been possible, Right? But God had a bigger vision for Joseph's life than just releasing him to go on and have a happy life. I wonder if you're allowing God to have a bigger vision for your life than even you possess for it. God had planned for him to receive a shocking promotion, to become the vice president of a global superpower. Look at chapter 41, verses 39 and following. Chapter 41, verses 39 and following. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So, so don't miss just how astonishing this revelation from Pharaoh is. Don't, don't flatten it into the flannel graph version that maybe you heard in Sunday school a long time ago. Right? This isn't like he just got promoted to be the town council of Brownsburg. Like That would be kind of cool if you were on the town council of Brownsburg. This is a global superpower, and he's the second in command of the entire thing. And as he's being promoted, God gives him incredible wisdom. To everyone around, the plan seems utterly remarkable. There's nobody so wise, nobody so discerning as you, Joseph. 
But on second thought, the plan also seems rather simple, doesn't it? It's almost as if Joseph has read Proverbs chapter 6, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. She prepares her food in the summer, gathers the harvest in the fall. Now, here, here's our plan, guys. We're going to work hard. As long as the Lord allows us to work hard, we're going to live under our means and save and be generous so that we can give and bless the nations when the time is right. That doesn't sound like a radical idea, does it? Work hard, live within your means, save money so you can be generous. Basically is what Joseph proposes. And within a biblical world, yeah, that's exactly what God has called us to. But to the outside world, it seems like an utterly revolutionary idea. Pharaoh says, oh my goodness, this is unprecedented wisdom. And what the Lord does is he uses Joseph to bring a blessing literally to the entire world. And in the context of the overall story, there are some massive redemptive overtones here. Go back to Genesis 12. What does God promise to, jo to Abraham? Through you, all peoples will be blessed. And he's bringing it to pass here. And you look forward to Jesus' final words on this earth, and he sends his people out to take the gospel to all nations, to all corners of the earth, to bring a much greater blessing than any grain in Egypt could have had on their lives. You see the, the looking back and the foreshadowing ahead that's coming. Look at chapter 41, picking up in verse 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in all the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. You sort of see the story starting to wrap up there, and what we recognize is that God has used Joseph, this unexpected man, to whom the Lord has endowed wisdom, and it came through intense suffering and extended seasons of difficult waiting. Don't miss that. God used Joseph in an amazing way, and it came after extended seasons of suffering and difficult waiting. And it shows us that people with confidence in the only source of secure hope can press on knowing that God uses unexpected people in unexpected time frames to do unexpected things. We see very clearly that Joseph succeeded because the Lord was with him. He makes Joseph wise. We see God using ordinary steps from Joseph and ordinary people. That's the pattern over and over and over in the scriptures. God uses ordinary steps from ordinary people to do extraordinary things. This is a different way of saying a, a phrase that we often use to say this. Friends, God is more concerned with your availability than your ability. And we get so concerned with what I'm able to do or not able to do, and he's saying, no, 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 I can use anyone in any time frame. Will you simply be available to me and not be so hung up on what you think you're able to do? When you slow down and start to read your Bible a little more carefully across the whole thing, you'll start to see this theme over and over again. Just a couple of examples. Think of Esther. Young woman, scared, out of her wits, 
Looks like her people are about to be exterminated off the face of the earth. And God exalts her to be the queen of Persia. The time that Esther is exalted to be queen of Persia, Persia had half the world's population. And God says, yes, I'll exalt you, young woman, at the right time, and I'll use you to speak courageously at just the right time and use you in a way that goes far beyond anything you could ever imagine. You think of Moses, so concerned about he's not able to speak well. He sees his own lack of ability. And God says, will you just be available to me and let me use you, Moses? Quit being so concerned about your own ability or lack thereof and just be available to me so that I can use you in an amazing way. And God sends Moses to King Pharaoh. And we keep retelling that story over and over and over throughout all the scriptures of the ways that God used an ordinary person in extraordinary ways. Or even you fast forward to the New Testament. You have Mary, Jesus' mother, a teenage girl, scared, afraid. I can't do this. God says, yes, I use ordinary people taking ordinary steps of obedience to work in extraordinary ways. So I wonder this morning, if you were just to reflect on this, I might ask you, what is the next simple right thing to do that God has called you to? And and you might be resisting. Remember, you don't have to be a hero. He's just asking you to be faithful in little ways, to take that next step. Because people with a confidence in the only one source of secure hope know that God uses some people to plant seeds, and God uses other people to water those seeds, and God uses other people to harvest from those seeds. And they know in all of it that God is the one giving the increase. Let me give you maybe a modern day example of this. I heard about a pastor's kid who grew up with a speech impediment. He was terrified of speaking, not not just publicly, but like in front of his own class in school. Of course, what does everybody ask a pastor's kid? You going to be like your daddy one day? He says, not a chance. Not in 10,000 years. It's not just that I'm afraid here. It's that my whole body freezes up and paralyzes. It's that my tongue like won't move when I'm in front of people. I heard him actually tell the story that he, uh, he had an A in civics class. He was so proud of his hard work. He was, a, he was a smart individual. But at the end of civics, he had to give a speech about a project he'd done. And so he just skipped the speech and took a zero on it and took a C in the class because he was so paralyzed. He found himself one day at a Christian college, and uh, the chaplain of the student body came to him and said, I'd like you to lead prayer at uh, chapel one day. And he was shocked to hear out of his mouth come the words, well, how long do I have to pray? The guy said, 30 seconds? And he was, again, shocked to hear himself say, sure, I'll do that. And as they walked away, he realized, I'm in a major problem. I don't know what I just signed myself up for. So he said to God, God, if you will get me through this 30 seconds, I will never again turn down a speaking opportunity because I'm afraid. Maybe you've heard of this guy. His name is John Piper. Friends, God uses ordinary people who will take ordinary steps of obedience in extraordinary ways. He's more concerned about your availability than your ability. If he's called you to something, he will equip you for it. 
So we've got to get our eyes off of ourselves and what we can or can't do and start to see the God of the universe uses very ordinary people. These are the people with secure hope. They're not super saints. They don't go on a poster somewhere. They don't have some incredible thing going for them. They're just people like you and like me who put their pants on one leg at a time and recognize I'm needy, I don't have it all together, I need grace, and I'm going to take a step of obedience. That brings us to our third point, the temptation from secure hope. The temptation from secure hope. I don't mean by that that temptation comes from secure hope. No, I mean rather that temptation takes you away from secure hope. We recognize God wants to use you. He wants to use you in a way that's probably greater than what you imagine. Then we would be wise to consider how might Satan try to trip us up? How might he try to pull us away from what God is calling us to do? That would be a wise step. I was reading the other day in the book of Proverbs, started reading through in the month of May, it's like Proverbs 4 I came to. Here's what verse 19 says. The way of the wicked is like darkest gloom. They don't know what makes them stumble. One marker of wicked people is they don't know what makes them stumble. They are unwise because of that. So we should look ahead and see how is Satan trying to get us to stumble and then make plans accordingly. You say a little differently, if you know the enemy's battle plan, it's going to give you a remarkable step up in the battle, right? It reminds me, maybe you've heard this story, of the Civil War Battle of Antietam, September 1862. General Robert E. Lee gathers the Confederate generals together. They write down the battle plans on their, their paper. They pass it out. They make their plan. They're going to attack the North in Maryland. It's where they're starting to press towards the North. It's a critical battle. One of the generals takes the piece of paper, wraps up his cigars, holds the paper together with it, and on the way out, he loses track of his cigars. They fumble on the ground, and the army marches out. A couple of days later, the Union army comes by. They see the cigars. They pick them up, unroll the paper, and what do they find? General Lee's battle plans. And whereas the Confederate army has been making progress pushing north, pushing north, victory after victory. At Antietam, the north finally gets a victory, a much-needed victory that actually gave President Lincoln the momentum that was needed to declare the Emancipation Proclamation and free the slaves because he needed a northern victory to precede it for his own political reasons. The north greatly benefited simply by knowing the enemy's battle plans. And we're wise to consider Satan's battle plans in our own lives so that we can have a leg up in the battle and fight with all of our strength and with everything that God gives to us, thinking mostly of fighting in the power of the Spirit there. I think one of two basic directions Satan takes us is to see either our circumstances too big or to see our self as too big. Fairly straightforward. Casey talked last week about seeing our circumstances as too big, so I don't want to linger too long here, but the point is really important. Friends, you got to understand this. You must not measure the security of your hope by your current circumstances. Well, let me say that again. You must not measure the security of your hope by your current circumstances. You see, Joseph could have said for a while, things are going well. My father loves me. Now I've been exalted by Pharaoh. God must really be with me. 
Or he could have said, now I'm sold as a slave. I'm thrown in the pit. I've been imprisoned for all these years, forgotten by all of these guys. God has forgotten me. Easily could have said both, but he didn't measure the security of his hope based on his current circumstances. We have to recognize, guys, that God's goodness isn't based on our current job. His goodness isn't based on your spouse loving you. His goodness isn't based on having a spouse. His goodness isn't based on your health or your financial stability or any of our current circumstances that we run to as the source of our security. It's not based in that. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 would utter such a profound yet simple statement. He would simply say this, we have nothing yet possess everything. 2 Corinthians 6.10. That's a profound statement. We have nothing yet possess everything because our hope, our security is not in our circumstances. So friend, watch out for the temptation to see your circumstances as too big in your own life. That's one of Satan's major, major tactics. But you also have to look out for the temptation to see yourself as too big. Well, that's just another way of saying watch out for pride in your life. Because what can easily happen is on the one hand, things start to go well in your life. Whatever that means for you, things are going well, and you start to be filled with self-love. And when somebody asks what's going on, you're tempted to talk a lot about your hard work or the planning that you put into this or all the things you've done. Right? You watch any sports interview after a game, and what do they say? Well, we just put in work. We just worked harder than the other guys. Right, that, 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 that's the temptation that we all have. And we see ourselves as too big. I'm the one who's driving my success right now. But the same exact thing of seeing yourself as too big happens when things don't go well, doesn't it? Because rather than being filled with self-love, I get filled with self-loathing. And I start to talk, instead of about my planning, about all my incompetence, all my weakness, all the ways I'm not measuring up. And what I see as most significant is my own performance still. In both cases, whether it's going well or whether it's going poorly, I'm seeing myself as too big. And Satan wants to trip you up and pump up your view of yourself or minimize your view of yourself, in which case you're rendered ineffective for what God wants to do in and through you. So how does Joseph work against these kinds of temptations in his life? Because clearly he's seen the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. I wonder if he has something to say to us here. I think he does. Look back at your copy of God's Word. And I want to just run through a bunch of verses in a row from Genesis 41. So let's start in verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pretty clear. He says, I'm going to regularly confess that God is the one doing this, and it's not me. Whether it's good or it's bad, I'm going to confess it's him. All right, drop down to verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 28. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Verse 52. 
the name of the second son he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You see that refrain over and over and over and over and over again. Joseph says, I understand the temptation to see myself as too big or as too small, so I will regularly confess to myself and those around me, God is doing this, God is doing this, God is doing this, God is doing this. He's the one at work. What that means for us, very practically and very personally, is that God doesn't need me, and he doesn't need you either. He can run this church, guys, just fine without me. I don't have any plans of going anywhere, so don't hear that the wrong way. Just saying he can do just fine without me. He can exalt whomever is needed to open his word and explain it and lead his people. He can run this church just fine without your money, without your service, without your expertise. It's his church. He's the chief shepherd. For the people in your lives in your neighborhood, or at your school, or at your job. He can reach those people without you too. He could send somebody else if he wanted to. But he graciously chooses to use you. And he graciously chooses to use me and allow us to be part of his plan. What that means is we must confess that his grace is stronger than our weakness. God's grace is stronger than my weakness. And I understand that's an easy thing to nod your head to on Sunday morning, and it's a difficult thing to believe on Sunday afternoon at 2.30 when you're overwhelmed with your own weakness and you don't think he's going to use you. Friend, do you really believe that? God's grace is stronger than your weakness. Major takeaway here from this third point that I want you to see and to latch on to is this, which temptation am I most prone to? To see my circumstances as too big or to see myself as too big and lose sight of the God who is the only secure source of hope. All right, that brings us to our fourth and final point then this morning, the path to secure hope. If we leave those four slides up there for a second, that's helpful to see the path to secure hope. It's as if you might say this, Justin, I see that God is the source of secure hope, and I see that God will use people like me who are ordinary and fraught with weaknesses. And I'm starting to get an eye towards the the temptations and the pitfalls, and I'm going to work to avoid those. But how do I actually proactively move forward towards this secure hope that God has for me? How do we get super practical here? It's like I have the GPS up on my phone and I can see where I'm supposed to go, but could I get a quick driving lesson to help me know how to get there? That's what I want to say in this last point, all right? And so the first thing I'm going to suggest to you is that you commit to a daily focused time of prayer where you don't ask God for anything. That's kind of hard to do sometimes. Commit to a daily focused time of prayer where you're not actually asking God for anything. Now, I just read to you in chapter 41 all of those simple declarations from Joseph about God is at work, God is at work, God is doing this, the thing is fixed by God. How would we take that into our own lives and translate the kinds of confessions Joseph was making into something that we would make? Here's what I want to challenge us towards. The month of May in Indianapolis is known as the race month, right? The month of May. 
What if we would redeem that month and everybody here would commit to pray a simple prayer throughout the month of May for, what are there, 24 days left? 23, 25, something like that, however many there are. Commit to pray this simple prayer, and I think it's on the screen. What if we just prayed this? Number one, Jesus, you are the source of all good things. She said, I recognize you're, you're, every good thing in my life, you are the source of thank you. And I just slow down and I start unpacking what are the good things in my life that I've experienced? Jesus, you're the source of every single good thing. What are the things that don't look like good things to me, but you've used them in my life to bring about good? And I can thank you for what you're doing in these things. And then I secondly will pray this Jesus, you graciously choose to use broken people like me. Jesus, you graciously choose. You don't need me but you do graciously choose to use broken people like me. And then third, you're going to pray, Jesus, help me to see and avoid Satan's temptations. Whether it's to see my circumstances as too big, whether it's to see myself as too big, or whether it's something else. Jesus, help me to see how Satan is coming after me. Help me to see the enemy's battle plan so I can get a leg up in this fight. And then fourth, I'm going to challenge you to pray this. Jesus, Help me to take simple steps of obedience today. And what I believe is if you'll take 10 minutes in the morning to pray those four prayers and think specifically about what that means in your life, that God will use you in ways that go beyond anything that you could imagine. And and as you take that and apply it to things that are particularly difficult, Like, maybe there's a relationship in your life that's really, really challenging, and it causes you a great deal of anxiety. And you try and pray this prayer over that relationship. You're going to say something like this, God, I recognize you're the source of all good things, and you've given me this relationship, and I recognize it's a good gift, even though it causes me great anxiety right now. But I'm recognizing it's from you. So I need not be scared of it. I need not run away from it. Because you are over all. We begin to reframe reality in view of who God is instead of seeing it primarily as what I see right in front of me. And then you're going to pray something like this. Jesus, you knew I would be weak, and yet you still allowed this into my life. You're choosing to use me in my weakness in this difficult situation. I again reframe it. Instead of feeling overwhelmed by my weakness, I start to see, God, you knew that I would be weak. You knew that this would be difficult, and yet you're still choosing to use me here. Say, Jesus, help me to see you as bigger than this situation, bigger than this relationship, bigger than this temptation, because you are. And yet somehow my weakness feels bigger than your grace here. Satan wants my temptation to look bigger than your grace. Help me to see how big you are, Jesus. And then you finish it and say, Jesus, help me to take simple steps of obedience today in whatever this difficult situation is. Now you see, if you take a simple prayer like that and you just start to apply it to the things that are in your life right now, you've got a solid 15 minutes of prayer right there thinking through how hard it is to actually trust the promise of God and live in light of them. But by reframing it in light of the true source of secure hope, there's actual hope to see a change in your life. This is what it looks like to put this into practice. So we start by praying a prayer like that, and then we start taking steps of obedience. What does that look like? 
Well, in Joseph's life, this is where the naming of his children came in. So I'm going to take a step so that I recognize here's this source of secure hope, and now I'm going to take steps that start to anchor my life in this secure hope so that what is technically true in my mind, I start to ground in my life so that I will not be shaken. Look back at chapter 41 and verse 51. Here's what we read. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So the two sons' names are forgetful and fruitful. First off, praise the Lord that he didn't, your parents didn't name you forgetful, forgetful or fruitful. Be an interesting way to get to summer camp. Forgetful, fruitful, where are you guys at? They come hustling over together. But it was significant for Joseph. He says, no, I'm going to anchor myself in these truths. Did he literally forget all of his difficulty? And did he literally forget all of his family? No, he still knew who they were. But he named his son that to say, the afflictions no longer define me. The grace of God defines me. The true source of hope now defines me. And by naming his second son fruitful, he says, my fruitfulness no longer defines me, but God's grace in my life defines me. He's taking what he knew to be true in his mind and saying, let me give an eternal reminder that every time I see these little kids running around, I'll remember that I can forget the difficulties because God's grace now defines me, and the good seasons don't have to define me either because God's grace is what defines me. So what does this look like for you and me today, if you don't, I guess option A, you could name your kids, if you're in the childbearing years, you could name them forgetful and fruitful, and that might be the way to go about this. I doubt many of you will take that step, so let's talk about other ways we can get at the same kind of purpose. How do you anchor your life in these truths about God? I remember as a kid, we had little rocks uh, on the way into our house. They weren't like tiny pebbles, they weren't big boulders, they were, you could hold them about like so. And what we would do is we would paint on them words to remember what God had done in our lives. Date 12 one, 92. God did this. As a simple reminder, every time I walk into our house to remember that we're defined by the grace of God in our lives. That's a simple step you can start doing. In my office, I have a picture up on the wall right here. It's a, so I see every single day when I walk in, two brothers who have been tremendous friends to me. God has used them remarkably in my life. And I put that up so every day when I walk in, I see those two guys. And I remember God's grace in my life in the form of Chris Barksdale and Eddie Ferguson. Maybe there's a picture that you need to place in your bedroom or your bathroom or in your office or somewhere to remind you of God's grace in your life so that on the good days you're not tempted to think I got myself here and on the bad days you're not tempted to think there's no hope. I mean, you know, this, this third idea I might toss out, some of you might not love this, that's okay if you don't. You might just want to get a tattoo of a Bible verse or something that will remind you of God's grace being the constant in your life, that he is the source of secure hope and you put it on in a permanent way in a spot that you're going to see it and remember God is working in my life, and I don't have to be defined by my current circumstances or by myself. 
The weather's getting nice. Maybe you do something simple. Say, hey, we could just invite people over for dinner one night, but why don't we create a new kind of gathering? Let's call it a blessings barbecue. Sounds kind of weird, Justin. What's a blessings barbecue? I haven't actually done one. I was just thinking of like, how could we actually do this? You just say, look, before we pray over the meal, why don't we invite everybody there to share one way they've seen God work in their life this year? So that even when we gather together for good food, we're remembering together the goodness of God so that we're not defined by our circumstances or by ourselves. There's, there's all kinds of practical ways. You can do what Joseph did so that your life is grounded and anchored in the truth of who God is and what he's done for you instead of what we see right in front of us. The point of all of it is to say that this, guys, hope is secure because the source of the hope, God himself, is secure. And we know that we often forget this, so we need to be reminded and find ways to have built-in systems to keep reminding ourselves. I started by talking about taking my kids to the eye doctor. With the right glasses, they could see clearly. And the reality for all of us is that we do need to go to the spiritual eye doctor regularly to see that secure hope really is closer than we often think. Jesus is near to you. If you simply reach out to him, ask him to remind you who he is and what he's done, he will give you forgiving grace and sustaining grace and transforming grace so you don't lose sight of who he is and what he's done. And once you see that, you get your eyes fixed on it, keep preaching it to yourself and telling others so that the song of your life can be, like the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the only source of secure hope. You are near. You are working in ways we see and in ways we don't. So we ask this morning you would give us faith to believe that you can actually use people like us. Fearful people like us. Unskilled people like us. People like us with a lot of skeletons, if we will confess them to you, humbly submit to you, knowing you will use us. Lord, we ask for grace to take steps of obedience today, not to put off obedience, let it wait till tomorrow, but that we would actively take steps to anchor our lives in who you are and what you've done for us so that we would never forget that. And our lives would not be defined by our our present circumstances or our view of ourselves, but on you and you alone. May our hope be built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. We pray these things in his name. Amen.